Today, by way of the evening talk, I would like to give a uh, commentary, if I may, on one of the talks of the Buddha and the various uh, reasons behind this. This morning, in the staff dining room, uh, Shada very uh, kindly gave me as a rather late Christmas present, I believe, a um, copy of the recently translated and edited um, book called The Middle Length Discourses of the Buddha. And this particular book consists of 152 talks of the Buddha, which comprise of much of the length and depth of the, the teachings and she, as she passed the uh, uh, book over uh, to me, um, which I was uh, delighted to receive, having um, read a synopsis of it on a visit to uh, California last uh, summer, she said, oh, um, isn't it your birthday next month? And um, I should point out that Shada and I have only known each other for 13 or 14 years, travelled around the world together, and in fact it's my birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, th the most optimistic thought I had was, well, she could possibly be confusing me with, with the Buddha whose birthday it is next month, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> somehow I doubt it. <laughs> so, in receiving this um, quite um, marvelous and um, wonderful uh, gift, and it um, cast my mind back to um, my um, monastic life when I was in the monastery in uh, southern Thailand, and Ajahn Tamadro, my Vipassana uh, teacher, um, had absolutely no interest nor enthusiasm in any way for anything that was written on paper. And amongst the various uh, disciplinary rules of the monks, he seen, which were already 227, um, he seemed to have added an extra one, 228 of his own, which was, thou shalt not read. And he felt that reading had been a major force of corruption in the Buddhist tradition and had very strong views about it. I don't say I agree, but certainly had strong views about it. So it was a very subversive kind of activity in the monastery to be engaged in any um, reading. And lo and behold, any monk who was seen with uh, a Dharma book in his hand walking across the grounds of the monastery, it would get a yell from the teacher so, the way that uh, we did it <laughs> was rather quietly in the night hours by candlelight um, in our hut. And I had an arrangement with um, Bhikkhu Wimelo, who has uh, now um, has been disrobed for some years, who was in fact a monk, a German monk, a uh, monk for 25 years. And I would read one or two of the talks uh, of the Buddha, and after two or three month period when I'd gone through perhaps uh, 
uh, three or four of the books, would pay him a visit in his very isolated hut some uh, several hours away on the bus on the um, other side of the Thai Peninsula. And with the various question marks that I had in terms of what I didn't clearly understand, and Wimelo has a very fine knowledge of Pali, that's the language that the Buddha is reputed to have spoken in. And it's a delight, as I mentioned, to actually see this book, which has been marvelously put together by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi in Sri Lanka, and has put it in a form which was uh, much more readable than was before. Anyway, all of this is a roundabout uh, way of um, giving myself license to give a commentary on one of the talks. And in the very um, beginning of it, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi um, makes a comment, which if I can possibly dig it out, I'll uh, um, mention in a, in a while about the difficulty of this particular uh, sutra, uh, that means talk of the Buddha, and it is in fact in the long list of them, the very first one um, in the book. And he says that it's so difficult to uh, comprehend and understand that it might be better to um, read some of the others um, uh, first um, before actually turning to this particular uh, talk. So anyway, I'm um, very, very familiar with it and I think it does have a direct relevance to our, our situation here. And the basis of the talk is that the Buddha describes four types of people. And in describing and referring to four types of people, one's own experience should help hopefully to uh, illuminate and set light on what our own experience is. And the first type of person is the person in life who has no exposure whatsoever to spiritual teachings, has never taken any interest in them, or perhaps hasn't had the opportunity to um, be in contact with them, and therefore his or her view of the, the world is very much determined and shaped by the relationship to it in a kind of unquestioning uh, way in which the, as it were, obedience, one might say, of the mind is to see things in a particular way again and again with unquestioning conformity. And the Buddha describes this kind of person as um, an untaught, ordinary person who has um, no regard for the teachings, who is unskilled and undisciplined in the way of life, in the way of, of uh, the nature of things, and who has um, no regard for those who are actively committed to looking deeply into life. Ordinary mind. And you and I in our everyday contact, of course, meet and know that, and sometimes we meet and know that mind within ourselves as well. And this ordinary mind has particular ways of perceiving the world, particular ways of looking at it, which get repeated, yet go unquestioned. And one of those 
and it's common to us as to one of those who have no instructions nor uh, exposure to these things is in a way to conceive I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here to conceive as everything as the reality of the situation and so that the experiences the states of mind the thoughts which come the attitude which goes with it the concoction of desire um, views opinions the arrogance and the conceit and all of that which the mind can ex be exposed to and be uh, revealed often and frequently says well that's the reality of the situation that's the way that it is with incredible conviction and our mind uninstructed uninformed in a deeper sense can pass through life again and again constantly viewing things as being the reality of the situation the truth of the situation the way things are and so in this uh, there's a list which uh, the Buddha gives of various ways that that occurs and one of them and rather appropriately it's uh, marked and acknowledged and celebrated in amongst various communities today uh, in uh, North America and elsewhere as Earth Day and one is conceiving of Earth in particular ways and that not only applies to Earth in the larger sense of the Earth here but also of material things of our bodily uh, existence and we kind of think the way we think is the way that it is and one of those is that what we perceive we conceive of and believe ourselves to be when you and I were sitting here in the hall in the meditation hall when we're engaged in the in the walking how often and how frequently in our experience of things what arises is what is happening this is what I am this is who I am and so our conception and our view and beliefs is I am sitting here I this material life material experience is going on and this is who I am this is some kind of demonstration or manifestation of myself and all that we build up in that just at the physical level of interpreting again and again that bodily life is who I am and so with the passing of years whether one's having birthdays today or not these utterly irrelevant events that in the passing of the time, in the passing of, of the years when there is this kind of identification with all of that then what may have given us pleasure at one point through the grasping and identification becomes its own pain in later times and when we were youth and young we looked forward to our whatever 10th birthday, I don't know, 16th birthday, 18th birthday, 21st birthday or whatever and 
all the anticipation and the pleasure of all of that. And now our constant uh, mantra is, oh my God, the years are going by so quickly and already another year has come round, another birthday has come round. And the only comfort that one has that when one is, in my case, 51, well, it, in fact, it only lasts for a year. And so the numbers, and yet through the identification with bodily life begin to matter more. And all of that association and uh, intimacy and contact is triggered and, and sparked, in fact, by a way of looking. No problem in numbers. No problem in the sensations that are going on, but very much in the way of looking and the kind of interpretation that goes with it. But it's unexamined. It becomes agreeable. It becomes um, a way of talking, but all ref in reference to material nature, to the earth, to the material nature. And also in that looking, sometimes there's a shift which takes place in our looking. And instead of saying, oh, I am sitting here, who I am is in here as some kind of tenant for X number of years who, through the very nature of things, is going to have to face forcible eviction <laughs> at some future time in, in one's existence, and if one has a, an Eastern view, will be uh, uh, reborn as a caterpillar or something, or even more slow-walking meditation. <laughs> and, and all of this, I am in here, who I am dwells inside my body, I exist inside of myself, becomes a view, but the view is unexamined because it's, in fact, in contrast to the other one. And we're hardly aware that our self and our I is switching due to circumstances, inner circumstances, external ones, our view of where and who and what we are. And we hardly know what we're doing with our self. And sometimes the shift that's moving and going on, this is everyday, ordinary, uninstructed mind, unexamined mind who dismisses and regards the significance of looking at the relationship to, to life, is such that we take a more detached kind of viewpoint. And that detached kind of viewpoint is that kind of observation of life in which we experience and in which we feel we're standing outside of things. I'm not just talking about the um, temporary, esoteric, out-of-the-body experiences, which um, some people report, but a kind of detached view from circumstances, from this world, from existence it itself. And it's as though we're outside of things, looking at things as some kind of aloof, observer of events, probably common to all of us in various times of our life. And we may begin to take that as some kind of 
reference point or model of what it is to be that to be in life or to be in touch with life requires of us or to understand life a kind of stepping out of it sometimes the Buddhist world has been fairly necessarily criticized for taking too much of a detached view of life but it's a position of the self towards existence an instructed ordinary everyday mind switches again it moves back and forwards in the relationship of self to life and very much the possessive element comes in as well this is my body what arrogance this is my life this belongs to me this is my right and quite often in those kind of views which we express conceit is there possessiveness is there holding is there conceived of opinions uh, are there frustration is there pressure is there anxiety is is there coupled with also a mixture of pleasure as well it's my life my body this is who I am it's my choice my existence But, as I say, the shift that goes on in our inner life with our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings never stay consistent on one particular view of our relationship to life. Uninstructed, uninquiring, sometimes, as I say, it's, this is who I am. I'm in all of this. I'm not a part or belonging to any of this. This is mine. And our movement of our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings and our view fluctuate back and forwards. Where's the truth? Who's going to be so bold as to say one of these or something else is the true position of the self in life? And when speaking of these things and exploring these things, the observation of how our self relates to life surely matters for all of us. And when that begins to matter, one begins, in, as the Buddha points out in this particular talk, one begins to make a shift. And it's a significant shift in life from being unknowing uninformed, unexploring, uninstructed in the nicest sense of that, what that means, unexamining, we say, to one of becoming what is called a sikha, that's not English uh, word here, but S-E-K-H-A, and sikha means one who is dedicating her or his life to entering into the spiritual disciplines which is called ethical values and considerations, contemplative awarenesses of life and the wisdom which flowers. And when a person is willing 
to enter into that, one becomes, in the Buddhist language, one becomes a Sikha, S-E-K-H-A, one who has entered into that training and in that discipline and exploration. Nothing religious uh, about it. One wants to live with an awareness into life. Once one enters into that, the standpoints that one has had and the fixations that one has had about myself, this is who I am, this is not who I am, this is mine, this is not mine, and all of that, begin to have the opportunity to stand out more clearly. Where am I in this life? Who am I in this existence? What does it mean to, to be? What is it to be able to track and to follow with awareness and carefulness and sensitivity, in fact, the process and the movement of one's self in relationship to life. As one or two of you pointed out in the small group today, and others of you will have noticed and experienced in yourself today, just in relationship to the material element, this particular one, the, the the package of body, that there is something very basic and very simple which is occurring. It couldn't be more basic, could it? My goodness me. Sitting down and doing absolutely nothing. Nobody's asked to do anything. If you do, if you do anything, you've already done too much. And then to get out of the posture and then just to walk on the earth and be connected with it couldn't ask for anything to be more, more, more simple than that. And the Buddhist tradition has a long um, history of practices and teachings in the art of doing nothing. I mean, look at the monks. So in relation, <laughs> sorry about that monks, in relationship to all of, all of that, the sitting and the walking taking, taking place is the bare, shall we say, manifestation the bare expression of organic life, material life, earth life, you call it all, in movement, when walking, in stillness, when, uh, when sitting. But the relationship to it, what triggers and is sparked by all of that? What the self does with it? Sometimes dreading the wretched bell ringer who's going to be gonging on the bell seven, eight, ten minutes before the next sitting and, and the thought arising, oh God, if there is one, I've got to come back into here in the midst of the hell realms and sur <laughs> survive another 45 um, um, minutes of um, masochism. And then, to then from that to go um, out and then do some walking and survive 45 minutes of the most boring possible activity that's ever been dreamt up for any human being on this earth. And there's the bare event, sitting and walking on this earth. Simple, basic, rather pure, innocent, uncontrived, non-special, but life showing itself. And within that activity, sitting and walking, 
what's the mind doing? And what the mind is doing is what the self is doing because the self is the mind. And so sometimes we experience ourselves, so to speak, as, as uh, one engaged in the discipline and the training and the practices of these things. And sometimes we feel the, the, the how little we know of ourselves. How little we know who and what we are. How little we know of the movement of the mind and what it generates and produces and never knowing in five minutes' time what's the next thing that's going to emerge out of it. All, all of that hopefully and ought to bring us some, some humility to the self. So there's a, what should we say, a process which is going on. And that process which is going on is to be instructed. Not instructed by the likes of me, but for you to instruct yourself, for you to inform yourself, for you to see clearly who and what you are in relationship to the ordinary and the everyday. And that making of that opportunity, in a way, is going from being the ordinary mind which believes everything is the reality, everything is the truth, the ordinary mind which says with extraordinary conceit, this I am living in the real world, to one which says, hey, maybe working my butt off seven days a week, um, sloughing out in front of the television um, night after night and wondering um, about, um, about my uh, retirement and pension and, and debts, etc. Maybe that isn't the real world. Maybe that's a manifestation of life which is going on, but maybe that's somewhere in all of that there is my arrogance, my conceit, my confusion, my desires, etc. And I've projected into that so much reality. I don't know where the true reality is anymore. And my conceit is I make the claim over that and say everybody else is out of touch, is naive. So our willingness to look and our willingness to question is, as the very title of the talk of the Buddha says here, it's Mula Pariya Sutra and it means essentially to get to the root of all things, to get to the root of the matter. Who am I? What am I? Where am I? So in the second aspect of that, it's going from uninformed within oneself, of course I'm talking here, to being much more informed. And that being informed in life brings the significance in life to bringing as much as possible an awareness to our circumstances, an awareness to the very basics of our existence. And it does require extraordinary degree of trust and confidence, of course, for awareness or consciousness to connect with sitting, with walking, with the here and now, with the moment, 
and say that perhaps somewhere in that basic relationship I can touch something deeper which grounds me in a way in which my restlessness and my agitation and my and my annoyance and my irritation and my upset and my confusion and all of that somehow that relationship isn't doing something it's obscuring it's hiding something it's like clouds running across the sun it it prevents the warmth of the sun touching us Then one could say, well, looking at this relationship of the self to life, you know, could spend a long, long time doing this, not only in the supportive and prevailing circumstances that we are in here, but also, of course, and as is necessary, in the various other circumstances of life that uh, you and I experience. But to be a Sikha, S-E-K-H-A, one engaged in the discipline of being informed about the way of life has also an important purpose that accompanies it and that is to stop being a seeker in other words <coughs> one could easily spend as I said years and years of one's existence looking into all of these things which do have a value, they do shake up the mind, they are intended to oblige us, to force us to work and face existence. One say, well, we could place ourselves in many different kind of challenging situations as some kind of um, confrontational therapy to see where we're at and how our mind is. I don't think you and I need to deliberately and purposefully go out and look for situations to see where we're at in life. I think life just brings them without any effort. We don't have to go and see if we can, you know, climb that, that, um, the side of the Himalayas or uh, do, um, or go and see, go and raise a banner for peace in the middle of some battle or something. I think life is constantly bringing enough to us already for you and I to work and deal with. But in working with from the ordinary mind to the, to the informed mind in that deeper sense what I mean has also a further step which goes with it. Where is the end of all these explorations? What is the end of the training? What is the end of the discipline? And that aspect of it, as he says, four types of people, that aspect of it is very, very vital. And some, and some of you here in this hall have had over the years tremendous exposure to uh, teachings. One of the people in the small group today you know, asked me about the relationship of uh, te teachers. And I said, essentially, look, teachers, please, um, they're small change and wherever they, wherever they are and I would include the Buddha in the, in the area of small change and what's far more important is the significance of the teachings and unfortunately all too often there's such misunderstanding you were 
will be aware of these things as much as I, the relationship of power and communication and sometimes the very painful effects of all of that. But one must bear in mind that I would say that fundamentally what does matter are the teachings. Lend an ear on the teachings, connect with the teachings and be very mindful and very, very cautious about any teacher who considers the situation of himself or herself which exercises or attempts to over your life an exclusivity utterly unsatisfactory and I don't care you know how well known the teacher is and um, how many boring disciples he or she may have that when they are saying stay with me exclusively I would say bye because that's a situation of a teacher overstretching his or her authority in the relationship and therefore to take, take care with all of these things and as I say put the priority in the listening in the practices in the application to the two teachings which are beneficial and useful for your existence and keep faith with that as the Buddha himself explicitly said many many times I am a good friend that's his criteria his measure I am a good friend so in that for those of you who have had much exposure to teachings and to practices in various forms over some of you um, many years an important consideration is where is the end of the teachings where is the end of the seeker where is the end of all the inquiry into these kind of practices and there is an end it's not a lifelong sentence if I may say it's one which is only applicable for a duration of time so it's one thing not to be on any spiritual path uninformed uninterested and what does the Buddha say and has no regard for those men and women who are deeply committed to, to spiritual things it's one thing not to be in that situation like that something else to be exploring as you are uh, during these days here but that exploration is an exploration with a completion to it and the Buddha says in that, in this uh, realization of the completion and the end of these things, is that one of the things which we begin to notice in ourself and in the movement of our mind, that this relationship of the self when it's caught up, caught up in its position, caught up in its standpoint, absolute in its viewpoint, or about whatever, is how much of the emotional psychological patterns and habits which are very marvelously explored in the text how much that affects the condition of the self and so sometimes we say well I look at my life I look at my mind and I see in my mind that there's greed and lust and desire we say I see in my mind that there is negativity and hostility and revenge and all of that 
I see in my mind there is confusion and delusion and, and fear and, and agitation. And one says to oneself, an honest human being says to himself, herself, I can experience this going on and it's unsatisfactory. It's unsatisfactory because it brings me suffering and, and pain and it's ugly to have to live in and live through. But also, and equally, it's also unsatisfactory because it taints life. When somewhere inside of ourselves we know there's something which is, it's, it's a taint on life in some way or other. Not only our own existence, but upon the lives of other people, upon our environment, upon the earth itself. And sometimes when we look in that way, and, and it's an important reflection in life, that when we look in that way we say, look, I don't want to live tainted in this way. I don't want to live with such distortion there which is so painful and unsatisfactory for myself and for other men and women in, in this world. And that can bring usefully and appropriately and necessarily a certain kind of moral, ethical component that we want to have an experienced life but there's some degree of purity to it some degree of genuine inner goodness and, and uh, warmth and um, interconnection with life. And so we say, let me look into these things of myself and who and what I am to help remove some of, if not all, of the taints which distort, pervert life and harm life. But one would have to say, though that moral aspect of it, that ethical um, consideration in which we feel our sense and our solidarity with others is so important, the main problem, the main issue with greed, hate and delusion it is that it prevents us from realizing the true nature of things. It's not just that you and I feel more closeness and kindness and empathy and warmth and connection with others which when we are greedy, when we are aggressive, when we are deluded we can't experience. But unfortunately the greed and the aggression and uh, the confusion, delusion stops us from realizing what's the true nature of things which is untainted by those states of mind. And these teachings are for that realization. So the, as it were, third group of people, to use the Buddha's language here, is group of people who have realized that, who understand that, who know that. Not as an, an occasional experience, not as something which occurs from time to time, but as the basics experience of their life. And then, but he then takes a fourth kind or a fourth group of people. And there's rather an interesting comment right in the very last sentence of this, which brought a smile to my mind when I read it. And he says, there are also, among those people who have reached or discovered or uncovered the root of all things, of what it is to experience, to realize life untainted 
by the human greed, negativity, and confusion to cut deeper than that. He said, then there are some people, and he calls them the targeter, means uh, one who has um, comprehended and understood in a very comprehensive way the nature of existence. So sometimes in life we perhaps have the great privilege and joy and, and delight of meeting with people who not in the first ordinary uniform mind, not in the second of in the process of exploring and going deeper, but in that category of people who seen the root of all things, the heart of all things, the essence of, of things, yet have no particular language or category or uh, ability to express or communicate or articulate or, or put it out. Yet one senses and knows by the way that person's way of being in this world that they've understood something very deep about life and are not troubled by life and not troubled by it. And when sometimes such people find their way into places at IMS and sometimes such people wouldn't be seen dead in a place like IMS. But one knows by their way of being in this world. And they've understood something about life so deeply which is liberating and they're living a natural free life. And they're not tainted by greed and negativity and hate and confusion and those things which so easily plague life and plague the mind. And then there are others who, as he says, are such that they have um, comprehended and have gone into these things and they're able to communicate all of these things and of course the Buddha, hopefully with much humility, I would assume, puts himself into that uh, kind of uh, category. And then just in last moment, in, in coming to the very end of this um, um, uh, um, talk uh, of, of, of the Buddha, the first one in this uh, long list of talks of the Buddha, it, it says, this is what the Blessed One said, but those bhikkhus, that means those bhikkhus are amongst the homeless ones, voluntary homeless ones, but those bhikkhus did not delight in what the Buddha said. Now, if you go through probably the other 151, I'm not sure, it's a little while since, um, they, they delighted in, in all of the other talks. But when they heard this one, apparently they didn't like it. <laughs> and um, I wasn't quite sure. The commentators have speculated um, for centuries, why the, why, why the monks were, to use the vernacular, pissed off with the talk. And um, I, I, I suspect it, it um, pressed a few buttons. Because if one goes through the, the talk uh, itself, that um, in, in spiritual life there is quite a, often a strong tendency to um, engage and produce hierarchies and we know what hierarchies have done in the spiritu spiritual, spiritual life. And there's a very strong danger in this particular talk of producing the hierarchy 
and of where, I, where am I in it, where are others or others another in it, and all of that monstrosity, of, I think, of hierarchy and division that can occur. And there may have been some um, reaction to that, or there may have been some reaction in the form of um, uncertainty or self-doubt from some of those who were listening. It's, you know, one can only, only speculate, but certainly that the text um, recorded, presumably, the event took place, that um, but those who listened didn't delight in what the Buddha uh, said. So on that particular point as I close, you, um, of course you may not have delighted at all in anything <laughs> I have said. And, uh, <laughs> so I'll try to approach if there is that response with a little equanimity. <laughs> may all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into the condition of self. May all beings discover that liberation which is beyond compare. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.